check, mic check, test, one, two, three, check. I'm not going to give this introduction anymore. <laughs> this is the last introduction I'm going to give. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to quote it now. Um, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman, grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30 years old. He never wrote a book, never held an office, never went to college, never visited a big city, and never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. Uh, he did none of the things usually associated with greatness, had no credentials but himself. And then it closes with 19 centuries have come and gone today, and Jesus is the one central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. We begin with Dr. Allen's quote tonight because the observation is indisputable to any impartial eye. Uh, across the world today, today, two billion people call Jesus Lord. Two billion people. Add to that, over time and over all the globe, the orphans that have been fed and cared for, the hospitals that have been built, the universities that have been built, the meals that have been given to the homeless, the countless acts of kindness uh, that have blessed this world. And all of them inspired, am I high enough? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? All of them inspired by the life of Jesus, just the life of that one solitary man. I, I don't think I'm saying this as a Christian. I think I'm saying it's just an impartial viewer, but not Mohammed, not Buddha, um, not Hitler, certainly, not Caesar. It's even close to the impact that is registered out of that, that life. And I, I want you to hear again, he absolutely changed history, changed the planet that we live on changed the way we think, changed uh, the, our, the value systems of the world. It, it was like an earthquake, his, his life a, a, and more. So as we come to the last three stories in our sen sense of trying to say, what does this book mean as a, as a whole? The purpose of scripture gets clearer um, uh, just as the creator in history was writing, uh, story number one, just as the creator was writing his own character into the creation, I was thinking today about, uh, I saw a YouTube video of a porcupine. What a strange little marvelous animal a porcupine is. What kind of mind creates an animal like that? And please don't argue that time plus random chance creates that kind of thing. I, I just think that is an impossible explanation for the diversity and beauty and order of our world. So just as the, as the scripture says that God in creation and then in history in the Abraham story, so God in creation, God in history, in the Abraham story, he chooses a people through whom he, he will reveal himself. All of it was pointing to this one penultimate event, uh, his son would come. Now, I, I don't mean to twist your mind too much, but remember, the scripture will later say he was 
slain before the foundations of the world, which suggests, as an artist, God knew the whole sweep of this before he even began, that the whole thing was in his mind, uh, how this would go. Uh, so you, you're dealing with an, an infinite uh, intelligence, just larger than any of us can understand and by the way, that's one of the reasons he, he faults us so much for not trusting him, to say, why would you not trust me who has such infinite understanding? So, so we get to this point in Scripture, and it becomes clear where we were going all along. Uh, the, all of these little hints, these things that it, the Scripture has been saying, have been pointing to the coming uh, of, the, of the Son. So um, it says that history is personal, that there's a face and feelings connected to it. There's a person guiding it. It says that there's an intelligence shaping and rolling this thing out and will continue to. So tonight we start with story number six, Jesus and the four Gospels. The Gospels were innovations of the first century. Uh, really, ancient literature doesn't know anything quite like it. it was, it's very innovative to do it that way. They're not biographies per se. Um, they're not comprehend, as comprehensive as a biography. They're not exhaustive. They're not detailed. They don't start, start to finish and give you all the details, every influence like a biography would. The author's selected certain stories that would help introduce Christ to, to their reader. The purpose was evangelistic from the very start. So what? Uh, let's step back here and say these are not unbiased writers. They're very biased. They're, they're all themselves believers, and they are doing this as an act of evangelism so as to help you see introduce you to this Christ so that you would, would believe in him. Uh, look at John 20. Um, so then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There's so many other things that happened that they just did not write down. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So it's an evangelistic purpose from the very start. Um, the four writers themselves are very different, uh, very different man, men with a little bit of a different purpose or a different slant or uh, preference. On Matthew tends to write from a Jewish perspective. He, his book is filled with Old Testament quotes. As a matter of fact, if you're an unschooled reader, Matthew's a little bit problematic because he references those texts that a Jewish person would have known from childhood, but a Gentile would have trouble struggling with how he reasons that. It's a little bit in that sense like the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is just demands that you have some sort of working knowledge of the Old Testament in order to read it accurately. So Matthew is filled with Old Testament quotes. He speaks of Jesus as the Messiah, Messiah, if I had my board tonight, I, Messiah is, means um, anointed. It's a, a Hebrew word because in the, an ancient situation, a prophet or a king would be anointed by oil. In the ancient world, 
your skin was always dry, the ultimate luxury was to have oil on you, to have anything that soothed the skin. So what to be, have oil pull, poured on you indicated that you were just ultimately wealthy. Un, you had all resources. So you, you poured, it also represented the Holy Spirit. So Matthew will call him the Messiah. Uh, uh, in Greek, then the word is creo, to anoint, C-H-R-I-O, creo, to anoint. So we would translate it into a more Greek-driven language, Christ. Jesus the Christ, but that's the same thing. You're just using one Hebrew word or one Greek word to indicate the same thing. Well, Matthew, that's where he's being. Matthew has huge teaching sections. Um, he has the Beatitudes in there. He will record that word by word as he can remember it. A lot of it probably orally retained. Um, so, Mark, John Mark, that, that we will meet later, probably the guy that ran away naked on the night of the the crucifixion, certainly the one that Paul sent home and Barnabas defended, that John Mark. He's a little bit more Roman in his mindset. His is the shortest of the Gospels. Scholars think maybe his was written first. His was the earliest of them. He reflects a Roman bias toward decisive action. <laughs> Mark's favorite word is immediately. If you read the book of Mark, you just circle every time it says immediately, you get the speed of this book. And immediately this, and immediately that, and immediately this, and immediately that. You get the sense of this decisive leader, this man among men. And he's just moving through the challenges of his life. Mark pictures him that way for Romans to say, wow, what a man. Luke, um, a physician convert, Paul, Greek completely Greek, a person of meticulous research. So he writes a little bit more for the Greek perspective, and the reason you know that is his emphasis on women. So many of our women's stories come from Luke, his attention to women and their place, attention to prayer. Uh, he's probably the most, not the most prayerful, but he, the, the prayer stories, so many of them come from Luke's hand. And then John now, look this way, everybody. Those first three we would call synoptics. Um, sin means the same, optic means to see. To see basically the same thing, synoptic gospels. And if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you ha have repeated stories. You get the sense that you've read this before because you have. They often tell, uh, repeat the same stories. Some of the texts, they, they repeat them almost word for word. Um, John is uh, the completely other thing. His is the more universal, the loftier, the more cosmic perspective. And I think a lot of that owns to his own temperament. He just is... Um, his focus is the synoptics basically, not entirely, but basically uh, sh were shaped from the Galilean ministry. They, they tend to see Jesus in, in his Galilean perspectives. John is near totally written from his Jewish as he travels into Jerusalem. And you'll see so many of his encounters in Jerusalem in John and uh, the, he, the great I am statements, those lofty mind-bending statements. Um, uh, he focuses on the deity of Christ. And so all, all that is to say these four men write these stories 
with the purpose of introducing people to Christ. By the way, will you let that be a challenge to you? No church ever gets healthy or stays healthy if that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to introduce the city of Plano to Jesus Christ. You cannot decide whether they will believe. You cannot do, but you can proclaim him boldly and well. And so no church gets healthy or stays healthy if you veer from that task. It is our desire that people come to know this Savior and love him the way we do. Now, sometimes scholars, in order to do that kind of study that we've been doing tonight, use what we call a harmony or a parallel. So look at this second piece tonight. Uh, just um, This is taken from um, the temptation of Christ. And you'll see on one column, he writes how Matthew writes it. In the middle, he writes how Mark writes it. Do you see the, the brevity of Mark? How he, he's so much shorter and faster, moves on faster. And then Luke. Notice by this that John does not even tell this story. A, a temptation of Christ, as huge as that is, John never even tells that story. He chooses to tell something else. But uh, you, you can see how uh, they are similar very similar. As you read this, you'll notice that Matthew and Luke change the order of the temptations. In one of them, one comes before the other, and the other one, it's reversed. It's one, three, two for some of them. So um, the point of that is to say, it, it, scriptures are, if you expect scriptures to be exact in a technical sort of way, you're going to be disappointed. That's just not what you're going to find. Suppose my child had a fever. I called the EMT and I said his temperature is 104. Please come. And when he arrives, he says, no, his temperature is 103.9. I would feel like he was misusing language. He was, he was not understanding that... 104 was communicated what I wanted to communicate, and it should have been accepted that way. In the same way, everybody, this book is perfect in the sense not that you can overlay your own scientific pre prejudices on it or even journalistic prejudices and make it fit in your biases, but it is perfect in that it communicates what God wanted you to hear accurately communicates what God wanted you to know. So some people get all hung up that Luke does 1, 3, 2, and Matthew does 1, 2, 3, and they're all out of order, which is the truth, and they start pressing this down into a, a kind of an exactitude that these men would have thought were, was a silly. It's a silly way to think about that. And I, and I know this, I'm creating a tension for you, because all Westerners trained under science the way we've been all kind of have that same expectation but you're not going to find it here what you're going to find is men telling the truth in a way that would speak it, it will accurately do what it's supposed to do if your heart is hungry for god it will lead you straight to jesus christ it is it is perfect in in that sense so i give you the parallel so you can read that um Scholars then have taken the four Gospels and divide them up, and this is completely speculative or is completely the work of 
the scholar, it's, it's not at all a biblical construct. But they've summarized the life of Christ into five different moments or segments. And so uh, the first is his birth and boyhood. And in, in the case of Jesus, that's the age 30. So birth and boy, boyhood. When Jesus is born, King Herod the Great is on the throne in Jerusalem. He's a mad genius, probably one of the more effective ancient Israeli kings. Just brilliant and mean as a snake. Just killed people left and right, his own sons, his own wives. He was just bloodthirsty. But he dies soon after the birth of Christ, and his kingdom is split into three into his sons. Herod didn't want anybody to be bigger than he had been, so he built it so that they would split it and all of his sons would get apart so that nobody would ever be Herod the Great again. And so um, Herod Antipas, Antipas got Galilee and Perea. So you see on the map those two little places. Uh, Herod Archelaus got Judea and Samaria, the southern parts. But he was so inept, so inept. This is the uh, brother that the Romans just set aside and put a Roman procurator in his place. He was just awful as a governor. And so the Romans set him aside. So that's why when we get to Jesus' life, a Roman procurator is really the leader in Jerusalem. And then Herod Philip got Philippi and Decapolis on the, on the eastern side. Now, Antipas, the one that had Galilee and Perea, is the one who married his brother's wife and got into trouble with John the Baptist. Now, look this way, everybody. To read to the Bible, you've got to keep in mind that Herod the Great started the, the lineage. Those three boys were in the life of Christ. And by the time you get to Paul, you have Herod Agrippa, and that's a grandson. But there are Herods everywhere in the Bible. And so you sort of have to remember who you're talking about. And I gave you this map because all the gospel writers will assume you know where they, where they are. When they'll say there, he goes to Caesarea Philippi, he will assume you know that we just crossed out of Jewish territory, or typical Jewish territory, onto the east side of that Jordan River, and, and we're up in that, in that northern area in Philippi. So just so you can kind of be aware. Okay. Uh, the district names were Roman in or the Romans named them this. They were for taxation purposes. Um, so Bethlehem is, uh, I wish I'd put Jerusalem for you. It's obviously down in Judea, almost at the top point of that Dead Sea, just a little in from that is where Jerusalem is. And Bethlehem is near. And then he was raised in Galilee, which is up in Nazareth. Okay. Number two, then, is the beginning of his ministry, um, the year of obscurity. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist bursts on the scene. I really do need my magic map, everybody. Um, if you look at the middle of Perea and then come to the left and you see those three little lines are the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. You want might, might want to mark them. That's what, you can always tell where you are in Israel if you can find those three. See the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and then the, the Dead Sea. Uh, so into that Jordan River Valley, John the Baptist comes. 
bursts on the scene. Now, remember when we talked about prophets and that at the end of the Old Testament, there's this 400-year silence where there is no prophetic voice? Remember from last week? So John the Baptist is the son of a priest. He grew up in the Jerusalem area. Remember the, his, the nativity story, the, the birth of John the Baptist? And at some point, he gets tired of the deadness, of the spiritual deadness of Jerusalem. And so he leaves Jerusalem out into the wilderness. Now, you, you would think that's the end of his influence. He's, he's abandoning downtown Jerusalem, all the politics, all the stuff. He's not going to be a priest anymore. He goes to the wilderness. But the Bible says, in the wilderness, the word of God came to John. It, that is the essential quintessential prophetic word. That's how the prophets all talked. The word of God came to Moses. I mean, to Amos. The the, the word of God came to Zechariah. What they believed, and we believe too, is that God himself so acted in their word that they knew what they were supposed to say. It's every preacher's dream that you would be that prophetic voice, that people would hear God speak through you. So he's in the wilderness, he hears, and he bursts on the scene to a pretty dead, pretty dead generation and begins to call national Israel to repentance and baptism as a sign of it. Uh, just Essentially his message is, we have failed God. We have drifted away from God and all the bad things that have happened to us are happening because we fail God and you need to come and be baptized in us as a sign of your repentance. Sound familiar? I mean, sound like, a, a, please God, a nation like America, and to, for all of us to say what's wrong with our, it, we can't fix where, where we are with more of what we've been doing. We've got to go all the way back to God, all the way back to a life shaped in holiness and godliness and prayer and service to others. Even if it costs us our other ambitions, because it will. You cannot have the world and God. And so John says, come be baptized and the, by the thousands. It was so intimidating to the Jewish leaders because they're leaving Jerusalem to go out and listen to this unauthorized priest, prophet priest, and being baptized. And so then at the height of that story... Jesus, the 30-year-old cousin of this preacher, presents himself for baptism. Says, I want to be baptized. And John says, no. Uh, it's doesn't, it's, uh, it has no application to you. You have no sins to repent from. This is absolutely uncalled for. And Jesus is an unusual thing. He says, just do it, John. Because I want to fulfill all righteousness. I, I want to take every step. This is him, the man's side. This is him saying, I want to be what a man is supposed to be. I want to take every step that a righteous man would take. So just baptize me. And John says, okay. Baptizes our Lord, and that's the day that the heavens open up, and God says, my son, my son. Now, John will remember, he said, this is the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. It's all the stories kind of coming together. This is you're beginning to see that in this one solitary life, this story is 
happening. Uh, he's, he's the lamb. He's the son. He's the Messiah. He's the, uh, the anointed one by the spirit. All of that uh, comes in his years. So he leaves there to go be tempted. The temptation essentially is the devil trying to get him to be just a little bit different kind of Messiah. Just twist this thing just a little bit. And Jesus quotes scripture and says, no, no, no. And stays on course. And so uh, first disciples, first miracles come about 18, uh, about 18 months. No, no, that's about a year long in its timing. OK, um, he occasionally goes to Jerusalem in that first year, but not often, not often. Uh, number two, the year of popularity. This is when it begins to explode around Jesus. It's still mainly in Galilee, about 18 months in length. He is rejected at Nazareth, moves to Capernaum, which is even closer to the lake. Huge crowds, the Sermon on the Mount, great interest, lots of miracles. So Jesus' life is sort of a bell curve. Nobody knows who he is. Everybody's talking about him. And then they all began to leave him, and we'll get there in, in the next. So that's about 18 months long. Then three is the year of years of opposition. Let me read you John, John 6. Uh, this is when things begin to heat up on Jesus. And it, people decide he's not as much fun as they thought he was going to be. Um, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, that is a difficult statement. Who, could, who can listen to that? This is not going to work. Why are you talking this way? And Jesus, conscious of his disciples, grumbled and said, does this cause you to stumble what then if you see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It's the Spirit and gives life. And he says, are you guys going to leave too? So that's the beginning of the years of opposition. Um, the Pharisees and Sadducees begin to send delegations up to challenge him. Remember, that's where he's tearing the roof, the, tearing the roof off and lowering the man. And the Pharisees are watching him. There's just, it's, it's, it's heating up. You just feel the tension coming against uh, this 32-year-old man. And then fourth, the last is, I mean, fifth is the last, is the last week. Um, everybody, 40% of the words in the Gospels have to do with that eight-day period. For, I mean, fully, fully, 40% of, of, of all the Gospels have to do with that little eight-day window. So if, if they have really winnowed down the life of Jesus into a life. They've even winnowed it down more. It's as if to say, if you really want to know who he is, look at his death. If you really want to know who he is, look at his death. And all of the gospel writers agree on that. Arrives in Jerusalem, Passover, cleanses the temple the second time, a week of controversies and his enemies trying to trap him. Betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, buried, and then resurrection, resurrected. So where is this story found? It's only in the Gospels. That's the only place you can find it, those four books. Uh, who is it about? Obviously, our Lord Jesus. What are its main teachings? Well, one, submission to the Father. Jesus 
look this way, everybody. His main lesson is that to be fully human, you have to live in partnership with God because you have to, your, your real identity is not yours. Your real identity is to live in fellowship with him and submission to him. Jesus would always say, I, I, didn't, I don't come to do my own will. I, I come to do the Father's will. This is what he told me to do. And so what he's evidencing, by the way, what a spectacular challenge for hunters. When, when we gather for prayer, we're seeking his will. We're seeking his direction that we might walk. What Paul will say, walk with the Spirit, walk with him. Stay with him. That's where you become truly human is when it's not about you anymore. It's about this partnership uh, with, uh, with uh, G. Campbell Morgan says, the perfect man declares that the strength of manhood lies in the absolute abandonment of his will to the will of God, that being the only right he possesses. The only freedom you really have is to go get near God. And then... Secondly, the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, uh, the eternal, as the, the God-man. There, not only is there nobody else in history, there's nobody else who even claims that. I mean, honestly, this is so unique, you have to say it again and again. This, whenever Jesus made this teaching clear, uniformly people picked up rocks to stone him to say he is crazy. He is crazy. His younger brother thought he was crazy his whole life until the resurrection. So uh, Jesus is saying, I am that unique combination of both God and man, fully man, fully God, and then his suffering and substitutionary death. Um, Okay, stop there. Questions, comments, anything that moves you of that marvelous story? Yes, Al. There's no biblical information about that, and I'm unaware of any extra-biblical sources that would put months on it, but it wasn't very long. It wasn't a long period. This was a young man's movement. It exploded, and Jesus will later challenge the Pharisee. He will say, it doesn't matter what you believe about me. What matters to me is that when John came and you knew it was from God and you wouldn't support him, Jesus really nailed them later to say, you knew that was God. You knew it was, and you wouldn't do it. And it, Jesus would often use his cousin's ministry as proof of their sinfulness. So, Anybody else? You learn anything by this reminder? The whole Bible was set up to tell these four stories. Okay, very good. Story number seven, then, is Acts and the missions. And that... Uh, my handwriting's awful. Shirley does the best she can. That's the mission of the church. Acts and the mission of the church. 
three tasks of Bible study is one observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? And then application, what must I do with this information? Uh, you haven't really done Bible study till you've kind of walked through all three of those. So the book of Acts is, uh, is valuable to us because it gives us that answer. The very name Acts tells us what the first people who heard this message how they responded. It tells you what happens in a group of people who begin to be uh, shaped by this message. So what, they, what do they do uh, with this, this truth? And so um, how do the, they live life committed to this risen Savior? So let's just walk quickly through it. Um, if you have a Bible, you may want to just flip these pages as we walk, sort of, uh, again, we're doing this from 30,000 feet up. Chapter 1 is the ascension of Christ. Look here, everybody. He insists that his people have a supernatural worldview. That you, he insists that you view what you see as only part and that the invisible part is bigger and better. He, he, he insists that you have a split world because he is taken from them somewhere. He goes somewhere in the body. He doesn't become a spirit and then disappear. He is physically taken. And then an angel says, don't stand here staring. He will come again in just that same way. It's a really interesting story. He's making you, insisting that you see two worlds, one that you can see and one that you can't see, and they both are operational right now. And so chapter 1 is the ascension of Christ. Chapter 2 is the Pentecost and the Spirit-filled church. They're all together praying on Pentecost in perfect timing to fulfill that Jewish pattern of what Pentecost festival meant. Chapter 3 is the first miracle and sermon that's another place she couldn't read my handwriting first miracle and sermon chapter four is they are arrested and then they preach again you see how every opportunity in the acts church was taken in order to talk just give me a chance to talk that's a little different We're, we've we've drifted from that haven't we we're not looking for every opportunity to talk, to use his name. We should. But they, the, the people that were shaped by this message, every opportunity they wanted to use his name, talk about him in a public place. Chapter 5, a little turbulence develops. Ananias and Sapphira have the appearance of believers, but they are lying, and the Holy Spirit deals with them. Chapter 6, more problems, grumbling in a church, and the deacons are formed. That is not grumbling deacons, that's grumbling and deacons. Um, seven problems continue, the persecutions, and Stephen's martyrdom. Eight, persecution and progress. They scatter because they're being arrested in Jerusalem. And so Philip just goes to Antioch and starts a, almost a completely, well, completely gentile in origin 
Nine things begin to turn the conversion of Saul. Ten, the conversion of Cornelius. Um, Watch this, everybody, because chapters 10, the story of Cornelius is one of those unique stories that's told in its entirety three times. It's almost as if the writer, which happens to be Luke, the same the gospel writer Luke writes this. He tells that again and again because what no Jewish person ever anticipated was the gospel to jump outside of some sort of a Jewish boundary. It was This was a Jewish Messiah. This was going to be basically Jewish in its character. And the conversion of Cornelius, who is a Roman and a Gentile for sure, but a God-fearing man, uh, the conversion and the Holy Spirit falling on him and his friends just blew their mind. The fact that he wasn't going to be a Jew and didn't intend to be a Jew. He was a saved man as a Gentile. And so you read Acts, he'll tell that story three times to make sure you get it. And got Peter in such trouble for going. Um, chapter 11 is the formation of the first truly Gentile church. No Jewish backgrounds, none. They just, they just love Jesus. Like a Swahili African church and a Polish church and an Argentinian church and an American church. They just, the, the cultures don't have to be even similar. They just love Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit begins to build a unity across the world. 13 and 14 is the first missionary journey. Uh, they're all together in praying. Acts 13, the Holy Spirit says to the small group, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the ministry that I've called them to, previously called them to. They've known about it for some time. I want them to travel and speak this word. So the first journey. The Jerusalem Council is this big collision that comes because these Jewish believers are saying, wait, wait, wait. They have got to be Jewish. They've got to be circumcised. They've got to be taught our rituals and laws you cannot just let them be included in all this. you cannot invalidate that and so they fought hard and they have this big if you really want to do church government acts 15 is my favorite image of church government leaders are leading there's a group meeting they're talking this through they're giving testimonies and finally james stands up and says i think this is where we ought to go and everybody goes that's a good thing. And so, never is completely solved. You have people angry the rest of, of that whole time. Has everybody figured that out? That everybody being happy is not the same as a good church? Right? If the Holy Spirit's happy, it's a good church. It, when the Holy Spirit's glad, it's a good church. Everybody being happy. Paul had people who chased him down to be trouble to him. So that was free. That was, uh, 16 and 18, the second missionary journey. Third missionary journey is 19 through 20. And then what you've seen in Acts is it began with Peter and it's gradually shifted to Paul. 
It started with Peter and his leadership at Pentecost, and by the end of it, it's basically about Paul. He's arrested and tried, and his trip to Rome, and he's left there. Um, at the center of the world, with his little missionary heart just pressing forward to lead people to Jesus. So where is this story told? Where is Where can you find that story? Well, it's in Acts. And then the New Testament epistles, the Pauline and non-Pauline epistles that are later written letters that, that, that the church endorsed as uh, characterized by the Holy Spirit. Who is, is that story about Peter and Paul and the apostles? And, and what? Uh, uh, life on mission in the power of the Holy Spirit, a life of prayer and Life in the church with certain characteristics that go with that. This, this fellowship, this attention to doctrine, this kind of unity of purpose. The uh, common word in the book of Acts is koinonia. People will tell me, well, pastor, we're supposed to have fellowship. And I will say, no, because the way we use that means party. And that is not what that meant. It meant shared life, that we, it, it's what we... We, join, we link arms and we do life together. And certainly there are fun times that go with that. But to, to make fellowship a party is just the worst kind of biblical translation. It's, it means that you and I say, you want to be friends? Let's be brothers. Let's serve the Lord here in this city. And let's share your bad times and your good times. When you don't have much money and when you have a lot, let's just do this together. That's what is a characteristic of that of that story. Okay, questions, comments, um, things that impress you or cause you to breathe deep with praise out of that story. Absolutely, absolutely. And I love the fact that later in his life, when he's in prison, has time to think. His most beautiful writings come out of those prison letters. Because before that, he's been too busy. He's just putting out fires and getting shot at. But when he gets into prison, they lock him down. Then all of a sudden, the beauty of this thing starts filling. And he writes Ephesians. You think, how in the world can you... There, there are places, everybody, that in, in English, uh, there are nine lines of English text, and it's one sentence in, in Greek. He's just flowing out of him. What he sees is the beauty of this gospel. It's just amazing. He is an amazing man. Yes, right here. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I what I like, I'm I tend to deal with depression a lot and so his his moral courage, they they beat the dickens out of him in a city, they stone him. And his disciples would help him up 
and walk into the next town. He said, I'm fine. And he'd start preaching again. And I thought, where, how in the world do you find that kind of resolve to just go on? And that nothing's going to disappoint you enough to stop you from doing your task. So it's, he's an amazing individual. Joe. And everybody, let me give you a, a, a book. If, if, if you want to dive deeper into the Gospels and particularly its Jewish roots, Edersheim, uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's about that thick. But it is brilliant. It is brilliant. And it will help you because you can you take any text and he does basically a harmony of it. So he, you're not going to study the book of Mark. You're going to study... The temptation experience, and he's going to draw all the texts together. But he writes from a very broad Jewish understanding. Edersheim, the life and times of Jesus, the Messiah. Um, who was it said to me on coming in here? Am I going to understand everything, Mr. Peterson? Was it you? Am I going to understand everything about Revelation when I finished? And I said, uh huh. And if you don't, if you, I don't answer all your questions, you get your money back. So on this tonight, so. The Bible ends intentionally. Um, you might stop and give yourself a test, everybody. Could you now, without notes, could you name these eight stories? Because if you can't name them now, you probably can't name them to your grandkids either. You might test yourself. Can you, talk, can you walk yourself through the scripture with these eight stories and then begin to kind of accumulate things? Read with me the beginning of this. The, the revelation of, Christ, of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, everything that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. I, John, your brother and fellow participant in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus. It's a time of real persecution across the, the, the Middle East. Rome is tired of all this. And they are really putting it out the best they can. That's the reason John's in exile. I was on an island called Patmos because of the word of the God and the testimony of Jesus. I love this. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I'm not depressed that I'm exiled from my friends. I'm an old man. I'm not discouraged i was in the spirit i was living in those realities of that invisible world and i heard before me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet okay very quickly we circle the word prophecy in that um, verse three blessed is the one who reads the words of prophecy 
not in all cases, but sometimes prophecy deals with the future, what soon must take place, says verse 1. Now look, everybody, here's your difficulty with Revelation. Over time, 2,000 years of history, there have been four basic ways, filters, through which you can see this book. And I'm just going to name them to you so that you know every author you read will basically reveal some preference for one of these interpretive keys. One of them sees that mostly what this is dealing with, the book of Revelation, is pretty near-term stuff. It's going to be the fall of Rome. It's going to be the fall of Jerusalem. It's going to be worldwide persecution. The, it's called preterist. A preterist view basically sees that what's really being discussed is pretty near-term stuff. Okay? Uh, the second view is called the historical. And best known in dispensationalism dispensationalism began to say, no, what this is is a broad look of history and all of these churches, every church that's named is actually a, a, a period of history. And it's really brilliant to read a good dispensationalist. It is brilliant how he sees that all of those churches actually represent the, the fulfillment of God's purposes. Uh, that, uh, that's the historical. Number three is the futurist view that basically says, well, I think it's long-term vision. It's actually talking about the return of Christ. It's, it's things that will be soon, but it's actually the longer view, that futurist view. Most of us have been raised in a premillennial preference. Most of you have heard that view your whole life, which is that futurist view that what's really being described here is the coming of Christ and the end of the age. And then four, I don't want to shock you, but there's been all along a group called a spiritualist group that says these are not historical events. These are all just symbols of things that are happening in the invisible world. They just symbolize realities. That's an amillennial view. There's really not going to be a millennial. It's a millennium. It's that's it's not really a historical document. It's just uh, it's symbols of things that are really happening. Now, my own bias is toward preterism and the futurist view. I'm, I, I see both of those realities as very near term at times, I think, and also an image of the future. But Then will you go back and circle testimony? Whatever you think about Revelation, everybody, it is what John saw. This is no product of his imagination, and he makes no attempt to say that. It is a vision that Jesus Christ glorified, gave John, gave him in technicolor. And so you, you can argue about what it meant, and it didn't come with a little instruction book. It didn't come. Jesus felt no need to say, this means that, and that means this, and that means this. That is not even really how John experienced it. John, I think sometimes you ought to read Revelation and let it hit your gut. Let it make, you ought to feel small in the face of this thing. You ought, to, you ought to feel terrified. You ought to feel thankful. You ought to feel clean and safe. You ought to read it at, at the level that a vision would have come. It, it's not very cognitive, 
it was, and we probably do damage because we're trying to take a vision and then put it back into a cognitive filter. But it came to John as a vision, and he just reports it. Um, then circle Revelation, um, apokalupto is the Greek, apocalypse. Apo means from, kalupto means cover, it just means, watch me, God's just going to uncover this so that you can see what's going to happen. He's just going to uncover it so your eyes could have seen it that your logic never would have. And then right victory. John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. He is not defeated. Um, he's not discouraged. He's lost in a larger world. Um, that's, I think that's a Christmas song. Lost in wonder, something praise. Something lost in wonder, joy and praise. How does that? Yeah, but that's that's the feeling of Revelation. You're just lost in this larger world. As a matter of fact, if I, if I could give moderns any gift, it would be the ability to let down your cognitive arguments and go with the Lord to that place. Just go on now and just be lost in what's being said. Clovis Chapel says the Revelation is the most optimistic book in the New Testament. The theme is overcomers and when it's all over, said and done, the Lord will have won. Very quickly, chapter 1 is the intro, the revelation of the glorified Christ. People who say, when I get up there, I'm going to ask him so-and-so. I always want to say, no, you're not. You will, that is not what's going to happen. It, it knocked John down. He didn't know whether to be afraid or glad. It the, the vision, y'all go stare at our stained glass, the glorified Christ. That artist is trying to help you see just the majesty of this individual that you know as a friend. So chapter 2 is the letters to the churches that John knew well. Chapters 4 and 5 is the vision of heaven. In a thing that no Jew could have ever written, there is a vision of the throne and the one who sits on the throne and the elders and the seraphim and the cherubim singing around him. And he says, who can open this book that would be the, the end of all things, the meaning of all things, the purpose that was under, and nobody can open it. And then the lamb comes. And then they all sing the same song to him that they sang to the throne. No Jew could have ever written that. Because all this, you're talking about co-equal gods. You're talking about the Lamb is equal to the Father. And the Scripture never, never apologizes for the tension. that There is just one God. He, we know Him in three faces, three persons, three experiences, three uh, whatever you want to say. But the vision of heaven, there is this throne of God, and then there's this Lamb, and He the same words of praise. Worthy is the Lamb to receive honor and glory and blessing. It's just, it's just magnificent. I, nobody, it is ridiculous to say that John wrote that. It is ridiculous to say this is a product of a man's imagination. No man does that. 
So uh, chapter 6, then the seals are open. The, the lamb says, I'll open that. I will bring all of history together. I will finally make a meaning to all this and tell what that meaning was. Seals begin to open. Cosmic events, the whole order of the world falls apart as it comes to the end. Chapter 7 is God's people in tribulation uh, seeking justice. By the way, they are saying, how long till you bring justice? How long till you make this fair? It's not been fair. Religious people have been persecuted and beaten down. How long to come? Come, Lord Jesus. It bothers me that moderns don't pray for Jesus to come. And they say things like, well, I want my nephew to be saved before he comes. Or I worry about so-and-so. Or, and we almost feel like we're doing, that we're holier than God. That somehow the real burden of everybody getting saved is ours. The early church said, leave that to the Father. Pray for him to come. The world will never be safe. Never going to be safe for children. Never going to be safe. Think about what's happening in Afghanistan and pray for Jesus to come. Somebody, so uh, that's what this book says. Um, chapters 8 through 18 is tribulation. Um, here is where it becomes clear that the human race has intentionally, deliberately rebelled against God. Even as he begins to rain down on them, they cannot or will not repent. They are hurting Jesse's. They are hurting. But they will not go back to the one seminal idea that there is a God and I owe something to him. So they fight all the way to the end of the destruction. Chapters 19 and 20 is the second coming of Christ. Remember four events that have to do with that. The return of Christ, the resurrection of the saints, the reign of Christ on the earth, which we call the millennium, and the rewards and wrath that come with it. Four R's that will help you Put that event together. That's Who's glad that the, the next big thing hasn't happened yet? The next big event in, in salvation history is still ahead of us. It's, we're, we're rushing toward that event. Chapter 21, 22 is a new heaven and new earth. Where is this found? Only in the book of Revelation. Who? God the Father and God the risen Son. The people of God and the unrepentant people of the world. Teachings, life will be hard for those who are true to Christ. Uh, faith will continue on the earth. You cannot stomp it out. And the ultimate victory is God, righteousness, and his overcoming people. That was so fast. But anybody want to comment on that? Thank you. Thank you. It's a privilege to tell it. Anybody? Yes. Uh, let's just review. I thought they were in there. Are they not? It, it begins with beginnings. Beginnings is Genesis 1 through 11. The second is uh, God chooses a people and a place, which is the story of Abraham and his children. The third is called Exodus. 
which is the story of Moses and the children of Israel carried out of Egypt into a land of his promise. The fourth is called Judges, Prophets, and Kings, which is basically that period of time when the people are in the land of Israel and they are beginning to decline. The fifth story is called Exile and Return. God threatens them if they will not return to God, he will destroy their nation. So they are destroyed, taken into captivity, and then they return and appear to silence. And then we get to tonight, Gospels, the book of Acts, and Revelation. Anybody want to just say what makes your heart happy about this story? Anybody want to just praise God for what this story says? Here's your homework. Go home and ask yourself which particular book speaks loudly to this present generation in America. Of that vast breadth of that story, what part of this book directly connects to us these days? It might be good to spend some time in that chapter because that's where you're living right now. You're living in that age. Lord, bless these people. Bless us all as we study your word. We know that you have... Uh, promised that if we will attend to your word, if we will live in it, we will be set free because we're your disciples, free indeed. Uh, this is a great sword. It is a miracle that we hold in our hands, and we're grateful for your kind heart that has written it to us to help us know you better. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Good night, you guys. Thank you.